One day, Frederick Beckner opened up and talked about his father's suicide. It's just a devastating experience for him, took him by complete surprise, and so it did with everybody else that knew his dad. I mean, nobody saw this coming. Fred said he was only 10 years old at the time when his dad decided to just give up on everything and, and bring his, his life to an end. He left a note behind, it was written to his mother, and it just simply said, I love you, I adore you, but I am no good. For the longest time, Frederick Beckner said he was just embarrassed by what his father had done, and so for the longest time, when other people would ask him about it, he wasn't sure what to say. So for a number of years, when other people would ask about how his father died, he would just simply respond, he had heart trouble. And in a sense, that was really true. His father had a heart, and it was very troubled. How many of our friends and family have heart trouble, and yet we don't know a thing about it? All we see is the outward appearance. All we see is the smile on their face. Every time we're around them, they seem to be fine. They're staying busy. They're working hard. They never seem to want to be a, a burden to anybody else. On the outside, they seem to be happy, healthy, and strong. And yet, if we could pull the curtains back and step into their private world and take a look at their heart, we might be shocked at all the doubt and the fear and the worries and the struggles, all the things that they are afraid to talk about with others. Makes me think of that story back in the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter 6, the nation of Israel is going through this severe famine. I mean, people so desperate for food, the Bible says they were willing to pay more than six months' wages for half a pint of dove's dung. That's bird poop willing to pay more than six months' wages just to have a little bit of bird poop, just so they'd have something to eat. That's how bad things were. And in these bad times, people are wondering about their king. Is he even aware of what's going on? I mean, he lives in the palace. He's got these endless resources. Is he touched by our plight? Is he affected by our troubles? Does he have any sympathy at all for the man on the street? Well, one day, the woman spots the king out taking a walk. The king's name is Joram. He's the son of Ahab. One day she spots him out, taking, he's up there in the wall taking a walk. There he is standing above the fray, dressed in these royal robes. He looks so powerful and majestic. I mean, you wouldn't know anything was wrong by looking at the king. So the woman calls out to her king, and she begins to unload her heart, and she begins to tell him about all the troubles she's having, all the troubles that her friends are having. And then she wonders if this testimony is going to make any dent in the king's heart. Because there he stands, tall and strong, dressed in these majestic garments. I mean, he looks unflappable. And yet the king surprises the woman. After he hears his story, the Bible tells us, and he ripped off his royal robes. And the woman was stunned to see, hidden underneath, the king is actually wearing sackcloth. It's a garment of mourning. See, on the outside, with those royal robes, the king appeared to be unfazed by all the troubles that his country was having. But take off the robe. And now you see the truth. Now you see the real man who wears that crown. You see a king who is actually grieving. He is deeply tormented by all the problems that he and his people are now going through. Well, again, it makes me wonder how many Jorams are walking around us right now. On the outside, they appear to be happy, healthy, and strong. But if you could just take a look at their heart, you might see they're wearing a different set of clothes. That inside, they too are agitated and worried and deeply troubled and stressed. This is one of the reasons why I love the book of Nehemiah. Uh, because we get an inside look at the private struggles of this great man of God. I mean, when you read through the book, if you just kind of skim the surface, you just read through the book kind of quickly, on the outside, man, you're just impressed with Nehemiah. I mean, sometimes you feel like you're reading the story of Superman. I mean, many times I find myself scratching my head and thinking, is there anything this young man cannot do? 
I mean, you think about all his remarkable achievements. He's, he's born in exile, so he starts off life as a prisoner of war. He's living in captivity. He's nothing but a slave and a foreigner. Seems to have no future at all. And yet at a young age, somehow, some way, he rises up to become the cupbearer for the king. And understand a cupbearer is more than just somebody who sips wine and makes sure, makes sure that there's no poison in the food. It's a much more important role than that. I mean, he's part of the king's inner council. He's somebody the king trusts and respects, somebody the king leans on constantly for wisdom and advice. Very important role. And you'd think, man, how did somebody with Nehemiah's background, I mean, just a, a, a foreigner and a slave, a prisoner of war, how did he rise up to a role like that? This young man must be somebody special. And he is. And it even gets more remarkable. One day, God taps Nehemiah on the shoulder and says, I've got a different assignment in mind for you. So Nehemiah goes from living in the palace, talking to kings and other world leaders, giving press releases to the public, this enormously powerful and influential role. But now God wants him to wear a different hat. And again, this is something Nehemiah's never done before. They didn't teach him how to do this at college. Now God wants Nehemiah to manage this major renovation project in the city of Jerusalem. Something nobody else has ever been able to, for 140 years, nobody else has ever been able to pull it off. But Nehemiah does, and he does it in record time. I mean, in just 52 days, in the spring and summer of the year 44, 445 B.C., at the very moment over there in the western side of the world where Socrates is now teaching the city of Athens, in another 25, 30 years, he's going to have this star pupil by the name of Plato. Great things happening on the western side of the world. Well, at the very same time here on the eastern side of the world, something remarkable is taking place too. Nehemiah, the way he's able to rally all the people together. And in just 52 days, they rebuild all the walls. Man, you just step back and you look at one remarkable achievement after another. and You feel like you're reading the real life version of Superman. But then you dig deeper. You just slow it down verse by verse. Work your way through the book and you'll notice sprinkled throughout this story are those private moments when you get a chance to actually look at this guy's heart. Those moments when he takes the cape off. Those moments when you get to see his fears and you hear his doubts and you begin to understand that when the critics attacked though publicly it looked like he was unfazed by their criticism. It hit home. There are nights when he cannot sleep because he cannot shake the troubles from his mind. And so the question becomes this, how does God help Nehemiah with his struggles? And we get a glimpse of that here in chapter 4. So let's take a look. Nehemiah chapter 4, I'm going to start with verse 1. Please keep in mind the context. If you're reading your way through this book, you, you just finished chapter 3 and such an impressive chapter. I, I know it's a long list of names, but... You, you consider how carefully and how wisely Nehemiah has positioned all the people, everybody in Jerusalem, there's a job for everybody. And he's got every one of those families and every one of those groups positioned at a particular section of the wall, the section of the wall that they are suited for and they are really gifted for. I mean, the organization here is so impressive. Couldn't have planned anything better. I mean, everything is laid out so as to maximize the talents of the people and put each person where they're going to experience their greatest success. And you would think with a workforce like this now and the kind of organization that is now in place that from this moment on, everything's just going to go smoothly. Everything's going to go so well, but it doesn't. And it's right there that we learn this valuable lesson. God's work, get this, God's work never moves forward without opposition. Never. And here in Nehemiah chapter 4, the opposition becomes particularly intense. So notice 
It says, when Sanballat, he's the governor of Samaria, one of the enemies of the Jews, when he heard that we were rebuilding the wall, and this expression in Hebrew, rebuilding the wall, sometimes it's used as a metaphor for repairing a wound. This is more than just a physical project. There's, there's a lot more. There's a lot of implications here. This is a lot more in putting up the walls and having some kind of physical security for the people. I mean, that's important. But this is a spiritual project, too. How many times have we already heard Nehemiah talking about God's people and how they're living in disgrace? God's people are in trouble. This whole project is about spiritually getting them back on their feet again, repairing the wounds in their heart, restoring their confidence in how great a God we serve. Well, Sam Ballot, when he realizes, hey, they're not just talking about it, they're not just thinking about it, they're actually doing it. Man, look, they got the stones in place. They're starting to put this thing up. I got to put a stop to this. So Sam Ballot becomes very angry, greatly incensed, and he ridiculed the Jews. In verse 2, notice how he carries out that ridicule, not by himself. He wants to create a very intimidating scene. Here's the gang leader, and he's got the whole gang standing with him. Notice, and in the presence of his associates and his army. They're staring the Jews down. So as he's making these remarks, you're one of those Jewish families there inside the wall of Jerusalem, you know, trying to put this wall together. You see Sam Ballot and all that he's got work, all those people who are standing with him. This is a frightening moment. These words really hit home. Sam Ballot makes these accusations. What are these feeble Jews doing? You're not qualified for this. In a sense, he's right. Will they restore the wall? Will they be able to offer sacrifices again? Will they, will they finish this in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life? I mean, look at all the debris. Look at the mess. How could you make something out of this? And then another one of the enemy, Tobiah the Ammonite, he's a powerful man, powerful army. He joins in. He adds his insults. Verse 3, Tobiah the Ammonite is at the side of Sanballat. He says, what are they building? Even if they finish this, you know what will happen? If just a fox... Just this little critter stands on the wall. The whole thing's going to collapse. They, they can't pull this off. Now, you've got to appreciate, I know Sam Ballot and Tobiah, they're exaggerating. They are, but there's some truth in what they say. To appreciate what this feels like at this particular moment, you've got to realize where the Jews are right now. Years and years ago, God gave them this marvelous land. It was a gift from God. They had a land that's about the size of the state of Indiana, actually a little bit smaller than that, more like the size of the state of Vermont. But I'm using some rough approximations here just so you can appreciate the contrast between what they once had and what they now have. So they had all this land, all this space, all this territory, and yet because of their sin, it's taken away. The Assyrians come in at one point, take all the people from the northern kingdom. Then years later, the Babylonians come and take all the people of the southern kingdom. Before they're all taken away, there's more than a million Jews. As best we can figure, population of the northern kingdom, southern kingdom, more than a million Jews living in this land. But they're carried away because of their sin. Seventy years later, God once again opens the door. Now he lets them come back. But in the meantime, before they come back, other people have moved in. And they've staked their claim to the land. So this time when the Jews come back, there's not much left. City of Jerusalem, the area right around about 35 miles, about 25 miles. A space just a little bit bigger in Boone County. So you've gone from having all this land territory, the state of Indiana, to having just this little space. Everything's shrinking. And now, whereas before there were, you were more than a million strong. Yeah, we're the Jews. We're the people of God. Now there's 50,000 at best. And of those 50,000 we're learning in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, some of those Jewish people are now beginning to collaborate with the enemy. They're intermarrying with their neighbors. They're giving up on their Jewish faith and heritage. They're blending into the world. So it's much less than the 50,000 who are actually committed to God. 
In other words, right now, you're just a remnant, a tiny remnant. Here you are, Israel. You were once this giant tree, but the tree has been cut down, and all that is left is just this little stump. And when the grass gets too high, you can't even see that. So when Sanballat and Tobiah are making these criticisms, man, it's hard not to question yourself. It's hard not to second guess what you're doing. Hey, maybe they're right. Maybe we're fools for trying to take on a project like this. We're not qualified. We're not adequate to the task. Maybe we're wrong about all of this. And yet they weren't wrong. What they were doing was something great for God. They're answering the call of God. They're serving the Lord. So think of the situation like this. Think of a man who every morning he goes out for his morning jog. And on this particular day, uh, as he's running, he takes a different course. He decides to take on a, a different route. So on this day, he's going to be spending most of his time running uphill. So as he's running, he realizes, man, I'm not running at the same pace I normally do. And it's taking a lot more effort just to finish this morning run. Is there something wrong with me? No, he doesn't think that. He realizes on this particular day, the reason why he's not running with the same speed, and the reason why he's not running with the same ease of effort is because of where he is. I'm not on the same route. This is not the route that I normally run. I'm on a different kind, a much more challenging route. Well, so it is with us as Christians. There are going to be days in our life where Jesus' life becomes a real struggle. And yet there's nothing wrong with us spiritually. It's just where we are at that season of our life. Maybe you just lost a job or maybe you just came down with a serious illness or maybe you're now pregnant with a child. You're in a set of circumstances that you weren't in before and you need to be aware those circumstances will affect your spiritual life. Sometimes we struggle, not because there's sin hidden in our hearts and, or because we've lost our faith in God or our devotion to the Lord is diminishing away. It hasn't. Life has just simply become harder because of the kind of circumstances that we're in. Right now, we're having to run uphill. That's the way it is for these Jewish families. <laughs> I mean, they are doing a great work for God. They're doing something wonderful for the Lord. But this great work has now suddenly become much more challenging because of all this opposition they're now facing. Now, because of these opponents, these Jewish people are having to run uphill. This project has all of a sudden become much more complicated than what it used to be. And in that situation, how do you keep from getting discouraged and losing heart? How do you keep from becoming demoralized? Chuck Swindoll says discouragement is like a flat tire. When you've got a flat tire, you can't ignore it. You just can't keep on driving. When you've got a flat tire, you've got to do something about it. You've got to find a way to put some air back in that tire. Well, how do you do that for your soul? How do you keep your spirits high and strong when you're having to run uphill? How do you put that energy and enthusiasm back in your heart? It's what Nehemiah chapter 4 is all about. All the way through the chapter, you watch all the different things that Nehemiah and his friends begin to do, the steps they begin to take to keep the momentum going, to stop their critics, to stay at the task, and to finish rebuilding the wall. And of all the things they do, there's a lot of significant things they do in this chapter. One of the things they do, to me, the most important thing they do, they pray. And you see all the different ways they pray. Verses 4 and 5, we're going to see Nehemiah praying individually. But then you get down to verse 9, it says, and we, and we pray to our God. They pray individually, they pray together, and groups are praying all the time. They're praying in all different kinds of ways. And through this, what we're learning is this, prayer is like breathing. You ever noticed how you breathe more often and you breathe more deeply when you're running or lifting a weight, when your body's having to work harder because you're taking on this really tough assignment, so now you breathe much more frequently? <laughs> 
and you breathe with a much greater sense of urgency, <gasps> man, I gotta, I gotta finish this job. Well, what's true for breathing is also true for praying. When you find yourself in a really tough set of circumstances, you've got to pray more often and you've got to pray more deeply or you will not survive. You've got to find a way to get that air back in your soul. So Nehemiah prays individually. He prays together with friends who are praying all the time, praying all these different ways. And then notice this. Notice the content of his prayer, verses 4 and 5. I want you to notice how honestly and boldly he talks to God. Nehemiah does not hold anything back. He does not hide the disappointment and the anger that he feels right now. God, I want you to see what my heart's actually like. I mean, he just lays it on the table. He just pours out his soul to the Lord. Listen to his prayer. Verse 4, hear us, our God, hear us. Do you feel the emotion behind that, the sense of desperation? God, we're in a serious situation. You've got to pay attention to this. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. We're being treated with contempt, and this isn't right. So turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in the land of captivity. God, let them go through what we just came through. We just came through exile, living under somebody else's thumb. Let them go through an experience like that, and maybe that'll change their tune. But if it doesn't, verse 5, do not cover up their guilt and do not blot out their sins from your side. That's pretty harsh. But here's what Nehemiah is saying. He's all about... Uh, Tobiah and Sanballat and all these other enemies. He's all about them surrendering to God, turning to the Lord. That'd be wonderful if they did it. But if they don't, God, if they will not repent of their sin, if they will not repent of their evil, do not let them get away with that evil. That's what he's praying. Because God, they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. And what that really means, God, is they're not just insulting us. God, they're insulting you. Now, can you tell from this prayer, was Nehemiah affected by the criticism from Samballot and Tobiah? Oh, yeah, it bothered him. It got under his skin. But he didn't let them know about it. Publicly, as Tobiah and Samballot are saying all these words, there's Nehemiah. He looks unfazed, like it didn't even make a dent in his armor. Because if he lets them know that it gets him, he's all riled up on the inside. If he lets them know, that's just going to egg them on to want to do it even more. So he does not retaliate. Instead, he takes all this emotion, all this feeling, and he just simply brings it to God. God, I can't pretend this didn't bother me because it does. I'm angry. I'm upset. What they're proposing to do is it's just wrong. You've got you've to put a stop to this because, God, if they shut down the Jewish people, they're going to be shutting down a work of God, and you cannot let that happen. So he prays this prayer, and where does he come up with all these words? Well, they're almost exactly like the words we hear in the prayers of Jeremiah. And almost exactly like the words we hear in the prayers of Hezekiah when Jerusalem was surrounded by the Assyrian army. And you can just go on and on. He, he reads his Bible. He's praying the prayers of his spiritual ancestors. Hey, they were in a situation similar to this. This is how they prayed. This is how God helped. I'm going to pray that prayer too. And what he's basically saying is, God, you remember Moses and the Israelites? How that one time they were trapped. Seemed, didn't seem to be any way out. Red Sea on one side, Egyptian army on the other. But you parted the waters of the Red Sea. You gave them a dry path to walk on so they could make it safely on the other side. But God, you remember, even then the enemy came chasing after him. Even then the opposition was still strong. Here comes the Egyptian army ready to run them over. And God, do you remember what you did in that situation? How you took the wheels off their chariots so Moses and his people could finish their journey. God, that's what I'm praying for. Stop the critics. Take the wheels off their chariots. Do not let them succeed in their plans. Take the wind out of their sails so that we can finish the wall, so that we can complete our mission for you. That's what he's praying for. Now again, honestly, is Nehemiah being pretty harsh with his words here, a little bit too vindictive? Maybe, maybe. 
But please keep this in mind. Your prayers do not have to be perfect and your heart does not have to be flawless in order for you to connect with God. And understand this too. He's not sharing these feelings with anybody else. He's not doing damage to somebody else's soul. No, he's taking all that emotion and all that feeling, all that anger, and he's bringing it to God. He's bringing it to the one who can do something about it, who can change Nehemiah. Not let him get distracted by this anger, but take all that energy and focus it in the right direction. And the one who can stop the critics and encourage the people and help them finish the wall. Now, there's a number of things. If you finished out the chapter, we don't have time to do this. But if you watch how Nehemiah and his friends, they get back to work. Okay, we got all this emotion and all the energy that goes along with it. Instead of retaliating and seeking revenge against our critics, just forget about them. Let's take all that energy now and let's just, just get back to working on the wall. Let's, let's get back to doing something that's really going to make a difference for others. And you talk about the greatest therapy in the world. Talk about something that will lift your spirits and bring encouragement to your heart and a, a wonderful way to replace the bad feelings with good feelings. You go out and find a practical way of making, I mean, even if it's something little, go out and do something that actually makes a difference for others. And guess what? You're the one that's going to start feeling better. I mean, that's a whole sermon itself, but that's explained in the rest of this chapter. Right, let me finish in this way. About 35 years before this moment in history, 35 years earlier, on the other side of the world, a battle is taking place. It's the Battle of Palatia. The Persians are once again, for a second time, trying to expand their empire. They want to take over the land of Greece, and the Greeks are not about to let them do it. I mean, they tried once before. They're making a second, and there's a series of famous battles. But the last battle, not nearly as famous as the others, the last battle, the last land battle is this Battle of Palatia, 479 B.C. There's a Greek historian by the name of Herodotus, and he writes about this. And when he writes about this particular battle, he's writing from the soldier's point of view. Like, what, if you were in the midst of this battle, what would it look like? And in his writings, one of the soldiers that he writes about, I think you've heard me talk about this before, there's this Greek soldier by the name of Sophonies. His first time in the army. He just signed up. I mean, all his other Greek friends have been out there fighting. I, I need to be a part of this, too. So, so he's never been in a battle before, and he is scared to death. Hey, I know myself, but what a coward's heart I've got. I'm just afraid when the battle starts, I'm going to turn coward and want to run. And I don't want that to happen. I, I want to be a part of the battle. I, I want to stand up for the land of Greece. I don't want to be a quitter or a deserter. I don't want to let my hometown folks down. I don't want them to be ashamed of me. I want them to be proud of the way I served our country. But I know myself. I know what a coward I can be. So before the battle ever starts, a couple days before the battle, he comes up with this idea. This will make me fight. Uh, Sophonies goes out and he buys this large iron anchor. And then he, he gets his battle gear on the day of the battle, gets his battle gear on, and he attaches the anchor with a bronze chain to his belt so he can't get away from it. The battle starts, and Herodotus tells us about this. The battle starts, and Sophonies is looking where the battle's the most intense, where the fighting is the thickest. And then he goes out right in the midst of that chaos and takes the anchor and just, boom. Oh. <laughs> now he's got to stand and fight. He can't run, not with this heavy weight. If he's going to survive this scene, even though inside his heart's just beating like crazy, he's as nervous as he can be, scared to death. But if I'm going to survive, I've got to fight because of that anger. Now I've got to stay where I am and do what is right, fight for my people. And I've got to fight with everything. If I'm going to survive, I've got to fight with everything I've got. And he does. And then Herodotus says, as the battle shifts, you know, the Persians are losing and they're starting to back off. And the most intense fighting is now over here instead of here. He says, Sophonies picks up the anchor, <clears throat> picks it up, goes over, gets right in the middle of all this chaos. Boom, sets it down. Now he's grounded, stable. I got to stay. If I'm going to survive, I have to fight. I have to do what is right. I love that story. Why? 
because i got a coward's heart too. And problems arise. Some overwhelming challenge suddenly appears on the scene. My initial response, I want to run. I can't handle this. Not now. I'm not up to this. I want to run. A conflict arises. I want to hide and disappear. Sweep it under the rug. Pretend like it's not even there. It's too painful. It's too messy to stay there and try to work your way through it. Find a way to resolve this. I want to go the other way. I'm not going to stand and stay and do what is right unless I've got an anchor. That's exactly what the Bible says I've got. Hebrews chapter 6, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul. It's Jesus, what he's done for us. But here's the key thing. How do you keep yourself attached to the anchor? no good if you're not attached to it. It won't stabilize. So just like Sophonies, make sure he stayed attached to that anchor, kept him grounded. He had that bronze chain from the anchor to his belt. How do we keep ourselves attached to Jesus, our anchor for the soul? Well, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 answers that. We fix our eyes on him. That's just another expression for prayer. When you pray, you're not focusing on the problems. Now you're focusing on the one who can help you with those problems. That's Nehemiah and his friends. Here in the midst of all this opposition, here in the midst of all this stress, when they're tempted to be distracted by all the criticism they're now receiving, how do they stay attached to their anchor? They pray individually, together as groups. They pray all the time. They pray in all different kinds of ways. Every day, they're keeping their eyes fixed upon the Lord. We've got to do the same thing. We've got to pray every day. We've got to keep our eyes with all that's going on in our world right now. What's most important is this. We've got to keep our eyes fixed 